Hello, and welcome to episode 88 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. This is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and I'm here for this episode with David Barry, the author of A People's History of Tennis. Uh, it's been a good year for tennis books, and this has been my favorite. I would recommend this to anyone looking for a Christmas gift for the tennis fan in your life or something that you just want to read for yourself. It's really interesting, and we're going to dive into the, the many topics that David Barry explores in his book in the interview that follows. Before we welcome David onto the show, just a little bit of housekeeping. First of all, fans of the podcast and Carl Bialik and I will surely want to also check out our new COVID-19 podcast called Dangerous Exponents. You can find all the episodes we've recorded of that at DangerousExponents.com. And for those of you who are only interested in tennis, we want to tell you about the new Tennis Abstract Podcast Book Club. We're going to do about one book a month, depending on how it goes, and announcing now the first book we're selecting, which is the memoir A Handful of Summers by Gordon Forbes, a South African player from the 60s and 70s. Gordon Forbes passed away last week, and his book is one of the best-regarded memoirs in the tennis library, recommended by people like Tracy Austin and Steve Tigner. So... I have not read it. Carl hadn't read it, so we figured it would be a good time to check that one out. You should also read it, and about a month from now, we will do an episode about Gordon Forbes and A Handful of Summers. So all that out of the way, I'd like to introduce David Barry, the author of A People's History of Tennis. Hi, David. Uh, what I wanted to start with was some of what you talked about, about the very beginnings of lawn tennis in the 19th century. And having spoken last week with Sasha Abramsky, who wrote a biography this year about Lottie Dodd, I'm, I'm already kind of on this subject. And there are a lot of interesting things in your book about women in tennis in the very early days. And starting from absolutely square one, you say that a lot of the initial marketing of from Walter Wingfield, who invented modern lawn tennis, uh, was to women. Can you talk about how how the game was, was directed towards women from the very beginning? Well, I think Wingfield was an amazing character, really. Uh, I mean, what he was intent on doing is making money. And he saw in the increasing leisure that the English upper middle class had in, um, as a result of you know, empire and all those things, uh, there was a lot of uh, opportunities for games to be played uh, in the summer. And one of the sort of uh, uh, um, thoughts that he had was that you could actually devise a game uh, called tennis on, on lawns that were being cut in the country houses. And that that would be a really interesting amusement and pastime for the English upper classes, upper middle class. Now, actually, that was bound to be a game that was about kind of men and women being together. I mean, there was no kind of money for him in, in, in devising a game that just men could play on the lawns. Uh, he really saw the possibility of a game that men and women could play. And from this, he was looking towards croquet, I think, which has been an amazing hit in the last 10 years. We're talking about the early 1870s now. And so right from the start, he conceived the game as a game that would be played by men and women and therefore needs to be marketed at men and women. Um, in his first kind of a book of the game, you can clearly see sort of women players playing on the same quarters as men. And in the, so certainly many of the early customers for Wingfield's um, tennis sets were women. So right from the start, uh, uh, Walter Wingfield, the inventor of lawn tennis, conceived the game aimed at men and women and a development from the market for croquet, uh, which would you know, then be a sport that would be very much played by women as well as men. So then a, a few years later, as, as the game is developing and becoming more popular, there was this proposal, I, I think it was 1878 or 1879, that there should be different rules for women. And that isn't what happened, as we've seen. I mean, the rules are still basically the same. Uh, but it, it, the way you describe it, it sounds like it, this was, the tennis world sort of dodged a bullet. Like if, if different rules had been adopted for women, history of tennis would have developed very differently. Is that fair to say? Yes, I think that's so. I mean, hmm, you can you can see, you know, from Wingfield, there was very much a parlour game played out in 
uh, out on summer lawns and not to be taken too seriously. I think Wingfield advised people to hit the ball very softly to make sure that everybody joined in. I think the problem with that is that the uh, men that started playing and some of the women started rather enjoying this game and deciding that there were lots more possibilities than just patting the ball back. And as the men got better at it, so they started feeling that kind of... the uh, Some of the men felt that the women were holding them back, really, that um, it needed to evolve into a proper kind of male game. And right from the start, I think that was the emphasis at the All England Lawn Tennis Club, in which they kind of, a uh, majority of the men there felt that actually, you know, uh, there shouldn't be a women's tennis uh, championships, there should just be a male tennis championships. And that actually is probably better off if the men kind of separated from the women and the women were kind of uh, uh, um, given a, a much softer sport. I mean, the thought was that, I mean, remember those, I don't know, you're far too young, um, Jeff, to play with wooden rackets, but those wooden rackets were pretty heavy. <laughs> and it was not, you know, the, 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 the easiest games to play once you started in the ball hard. So there was a sense that if the, if, if the women were allowed to play a softer game, on a, on a smaller court um, with kind of lighter rackets and things, that'd be more suitable for them. Um, and that was certainly in the air for about 20 or 30 years in the 19th century, starting with the, in 18, 1879, I think it was, when the majority of uh, the men at the Wimbledon Tennis Club, uh, All England Lawn Tennis Club, refused to have a women's championships. Um, and in some ways... You know, if that had happened, let's imagine what would have happened then. You'd have got the women would have played a different game from men. You wouldn't have got kind of uh, mixed doubles, because how can you play mixed doubles if you've got different, you know, uh, sports and different racket, a different court and different rackets? You wouldn't have got mixed championships. Uh, and you would have, and it would have evolved in the same way that, say, I don't know, women's hockey maybe uh, evolved, or women's, or even later, women's rugby and women's cricket. The women's game would have been uh, a much smaller game. It wouldn't have had the resources uh, that the male game would have had, and gradually it would have kind of become a bit like women's cricket, women's rugby, women's hockey are now a much, much, um, you know, uh, less resourced and less powerful game. Than men, uh, than the men's game, and I think what happened was that women like Lottie Dodd um, and Blanche Chilliard and the early female champions saw this with horror. Really, I mean, they realised that if the women's game did become softer and kind of um, a smaller court and lighter rackets, that actually. Um, you know, the women wouldn't actually have to try so hard. It would become sort of um, more like pat ball. Uh, and they wouldn't get the benefit of actually playing with men. Um, and also, they wouldn't get the power and resources that would come from associating um, with men. The men also realised, many of the men also realised that they actually quite liked a game in which they played with women. In fact, that was one of its great attractions compared with most other sports around. I think there was one uh, woman in champion, William Badley, I think, who said that um, a game of mixed doubles is almost as good as a game of men's singles. And there's certainly an enjoyment, you know, of the game um, between between the men and women at the time, from the men, from the male perspective as well as the female. The other aspect of it also was money, and I think you can never really understand tennis unless you actually see it as right from the start a commercial sport. I mean, Wimbledon only allowed its ladies' championships in 1883, I think it was, because another club was about to have a ladies' championship and they didn't want to lose the money that they get from being able to charge spectators uh, to watch a, a ladies' championship. And the mixed, uh, the mixed championships around uh, the country that started going in the 1880s, uh, the, the tennis championships that started going in the 1880s, found that the women's singles and mixed doubles, even the women's doubles, were actually a very attractive commodities for, for spectators. So there was a very strong commercial reason also why the uh, women's game would stay in tune with the men's and it would become the lawn tennis that we have today. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting thread running through a lot of your book that even when we think of a certain era of tennis as being amateur, uh, there, there's still a commercial, still commercial forces that can account for almost everything. Like you talk about Wimbledon and the BBC and their their relationship in the '60s, even before Wimbledon turned pro. Um, but I want to talk more about mixed doubles first. 
you mentioned rightly it was it, it was popular at the time it was it, it was something that spectators enjoyed it was something that, that male players enjoyed uh, nowadays it seems to be that club players seem to like mixed doubles a lot you still see a lot of people playing mixed doubles but as a spectator sport it's faded to really just a sideshow and people say they like it if they're if they're at Wimbledon they'll go watch some mixed doubles but as far as watching it on TV the, there isn't a lot available people don't seem the ratings don't seem to be there but it, it sounds like back in the early days I mean, mixed doubles was was a big part of the spectator experience is, is that fair to, to put it on a par with with men singles women singles um, the other aspects of the game around in the 19th century yeah certainly if you read those newspapers at the time um you know they comment on kind of even ladies doubles i think i think pastime um one of the the, the major publications at the time carried a report saying that the ladies doubles was more of a talking point than the kind of um men's championships in in the fitzwilliam club in dublin in the late 1870s now you need to take that with a pinch of salt i think i think people weren't used to seeing women play sport <laughs> I mean it was just uh, you know all the other sports were male only and actually seeing women play was an extraordinary kind of thing um, you know for all kinds of reasons I mean men like watch, watching women play but so did the women as well um, so there was that that's kind of um, you know sort of uh, fascination of, of seeing the two sexes play together and women play on their own that was really uh, you know that was that was really really unusual for the time if you switch it back to now I mean, I agree with you, mixed doubles. Well, let's 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 analyse it on the championship level to start with. On the, on on you know on the, on the on the top players. I mean, I don't think the men, in particular, the male champions, don't like playing or don't don't seem to play mixed doubles. But they don't seem to play men's doubles either, really. Um, you know, being a you know, I think it's I think most of the men's. Men, uh, men who play men's doubles probably wouldn't do very well in men's singles, um, and so there isn't the the, the demands to be a, a singles player, um, a top singles player is so strong, so difficult now for men that they just don't spend any time playing mixed doubles or men's doubles on a competitive level. Most of them don't anyway. So it isn't simply a, a doubles or a single. It isn't simply a mixed doubles. It's actually all doubles. I mean, all doubles are a, a sort of minority pastime in in. in in championship level and when it comes to spectators I don't see great crowds watching men's doubles as all women's doubles it's the men's singles and the women's singles that are the great attractions on a on a on a kind of uh, on an amateur level though I mean, mixed doubles is still extraordinarily kind of um, popular. I mean, you can go into um, any tennis club um, that I've known, and mixed doubles has had a very, very kind of a, a, a strong part of the club. Um, and it's still, you know, probably the, the game, certainly the game I most enjoy playing, and a game that a lot of men most enjoy playing as well. I was playing yesterday afternoon in the freezing cold here in London, um, and it was just a, it was just a great game. We were, all four of us really enjoyed it. And then an interesting thing that that you said about the the role of mixed doubles and and the fact the importance of having women in the game at, at this point in its development was that the presence of women ensured masculinity for men. That's how I, I summarized it. But to, to quote, I, I jotted down a quote from the book, at a time when tennis was still regarded from some by some sportsmen as close to homosexuality. The presence of women helped male players assert their manliness, even if it was in chivalrous mode. And at a time when there were doubts about whether women should take strenuous exercise, the presence of men pushed female players into embracing tennis as a tough physical challenge and not just a gentle pastime. So you have sort of men's tennis and women's tennis working together in a way. And, and as you point out about it, not tennis not going in the direction of cricket or rugby or something like that, the... To the extent they're two separate sports, they're very complementary, and they're they're helping improve each other. And just simply the fact of having a women's tennis game uh, makes it sort of a safer activity for men. I mean, do, do you think that contributed to its popularity in the early days? Well, I, I think that is partly so. Um, absolutely, I think there was that kind of um, great fear that uh, that male tennis players had, um, particularly in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties when the great swathe of anti-homosexuality kind of developed. Homosexuality was first categorized as, as, as a fear in the 1870s, I think. And, uh, and in, in most countries, it became 
you know, uh, illegal and this was in the late 19th century. Uh, and so a sport like um, lawn tennis, where men were playing with women, was seen as a kind of sissy sport with the potential to kind of hide all kinds of uh, sort of uh, um, homosexual behaviour. Um, and I think the presence of mixed doubles, especially also the presence of, of married men playing with kind of uh, their wives and things, helped to cast off that a little bit. Uh, I think there was still a sense of sissiness about tennis that's lasted all the way through the 20th century as well. Um, but I think certainly, certainly, um, certainly sort of, um, that was one, one way in which doubles paradoxically worked to help, help, help push that away. I mean, part of me feels a bit ambivalent about that because I do think that in many ways um, tennis for men has had a very strong gay aspect to it. And I certainly think that in the 19th century when it developed, there was some evidence to suggest the kind of men who played were different from the men who played um, um, sort of, you know, the more traditionally masculine sports. In other words, it allowed another view of masculinity that wasn't about kind of shoving and pushing and kind of, um, you know, sort of uh, being as tough as, as, you, as you can be, but use kind of guile and humour and artifice to actually uh, uh, be sporting. So that was another aspect I wanted to kind of get into the into the mix. I'm sorry if that's a bit, a bit incoherent, um, but um, you get a sense of what I'm trying to say. No, one of the, I mean one of the interesting things about these topics is they are so sprawling. And you know, finishing up your your book last night, I the word sprawling came to mind. Normally, when you describe a book as sprawling, you're talking about one of these 650 page novels that goes here and goes goes everywhere. But I mean, it, it's it's not that long. You manage to, to pack a lot of stuff into a pretty concise package. Um, but I think you give a lot of hints to how much further down these rabbit holes you could go. Uh, as people like me know, there, there's no end to the rabbit holes and the rabbit holes branching off of rabbit holes. But to jump ahead uh, a few decades, you talk about Bill Tilden. And, and he's he wasn't openly gay as a player, but he... He was, he was flamboyant. flamboyant. He, he had a lot of characteristics that we now associate with openly gay people. And later on, his sexual preferences got him into a lot of trouble. Um, but a really interesting observation you made was that like, it was common in those years that when, when tennis was predominantly amateur, that players would have these few amateur years, they'd tour on expenses, and then they'd go on to a normal life. They'd give up tennis, they'd get a job, they'd marry, they'd start a family. But to be a tennis champion, to be the sort of person we remember today, you can't really do that. You can't have a four-year tennis career and be a legend. You have to really follow it through. And that was a lot more practical for someone who didn't want to sort of switch over to a normal life. And that's in, that's Bill Tilden to a T, isn't it? That some of these some of these legends, in order to put together the the sort of resume that resonates with us a hundred years later, they had to be pretty weird, didn't they? I think uh, yeah. So I think that was um, in fact it wasn't my insight. It was a, it was a, it was a, a guy called Nathan Titman who made that that point, which I I borrowed from because I thought it was a very interesting insight indeed. Um, he's a queer researcher in America, uh, and so he was naturally looking for ways that could explain you know this sort of uh, dedication that uh, that Tilden had because it was as you said quite usual in that time to quit tennis at twenty five or twenty six and go get a proper job. <laughs> um, you know, marry and have family and kind of, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, play occasionally, you know, as an, you know, in your spare time. And that wasn't an option for Tilden. I mean, he might not be openly gay, but he was clearly sort of homosexual in, in his, his behaviour and didn't have any desire to actually um, have a family or have children. So just wanted to have fun with his friends and play a lot of tennis. And it was only at that point, you know, when he could have left, and he was 24, 25, he could have left. He wasn't that successful by then, I don't think. But he really redoubled his efforts and really studied the game almost scientifically. And then the, the great Tilden years come after that from 25 through to 30 and beyond. He carried on playing till a very uh, a late age, you know, as a pro. Um, no, I do think that was possibly true also of kind of lesbian women as well. Um, I mean, they, you know, it's only recently that gay men and lesbian women have been able to have children. Uh, but for a young tennis player in, in the 
early 20th century and or even the mid 20th century uh if she was gay or lesbian or so uh, there wasn't the option of you know getting married and and having children or so and i and i think that's why kind of tennis was i think that's why there were there was a a, a good number of uh, successful women players that have been lesbians um far more than the proportion would suggest i mean i think martina navratilova once said it's about the same amount of lesbians in tennis as as in uh, as in everyday life about 10 percent and that isn't true <laughs> i think the audience <laughs> are about one percent so you know it was clear that there are far more uh, lesbian players playing uh, and have played tennis than than uh, than 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 you would you would think from from the numbers and i think one of the reasons is because you know they able they stayed around longer and were able to play for longer because they weren't they didn't get involved in 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 sort of having families yeah and that seems especially true for women in the early days because it wasn't at all uncommon to start a family in your late teens and yes although you need to be a bit careful about this i mean some of the early kind of uh, Wimbledon female champions had several children you know, and they managed to combine it you know sort of quite easily or so so um you know but 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 it, but, but it does make another suggestion for me which i think i got from talking to some of the uh, gay players I, that i interviewed and they said that and from the nursing players as well they said that tennis has always been a sport that is remarkably accepting and open towards gay and lesbian players. Now, that might seem bizarre because there aren't any openly gay male players in the top, I think, three or four hundred in the world, or so in terms of men anyway. Uh, but when you go down from, from you know, uh, beneath that to the ordinary club level, it's always been a game that has kind of uh, encouraged and allowed and, 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 and felt very safe for, for gay men and for lesbian women to play. And that's a good segue to one of the other big topics that I wanted to talk about. And one that is another thread that runs through much of your book is, is the concept of, of the tennis club and particularly in, in the UK. Uh, let's start back in the 19th century. Tennis was one of many sporting fads in the 1870s, 1880s. There was this huge growth of, of organized sport. And some of them were fads, basically haven't heard of them since. There aren't exactly croquet tournaments at the level of Wimbledon, even though Wimbledon is the lawn tennis and croquet club. Um, and you talk a little bit about how the tennis fad faded, but it didn't, it didn't fade to the same extent. Like, obviously, the sport survived and eventually thrived. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think separated tennis from the pack like what what was it that kept the sport going when some of the other competitors didn't continue at the same level yes it's an interesting one isn't it i remember you know 10 years ago uh at a um a seminar with uh Robert Lake, the great kind of tennis historian and sociologist. Um, and I asked him exactly the same question. <laughs> and I was expecting a kind of very sophisticated answer along the lines of, you know, the sort of st structural needs of the British economy at the time or something like that. Uh, but all he said was that he, he thought it survived because it was a better game. <laughs> That's the only reason that if he... Uh, now, we can go a bit deeper than that, but at, 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 at its very basic level, I mean, the games that have survived are the games that seem to work. And tennis, lawn tennis, um, and tennis in its, in its form, is a game that still works as a, as a, a very satisfying kind of leisure uh, activity, um, you know, compared to some of the other games that have been tried. It really does. Um, and it gives... It offers a lot more than croquet does. It offers a lot more than badminton does, which are the two great, great kind of competitors. Um, I think one aspect of this is that it was always a game that was fun to watch as a performance. And I don't think you can say that of croquet and badminton and the other sports that arrived uh, that around at the time. I mean, when, when the early tennis championships... Um, you know, started emerging in the 18, late 1870s, people just loved them. I mean, it was a way of kind of, you know, dressing up. It was a way of seeing young men and young women in not very many clothes kind of show off their sort of brilliant skills. It was colourful. It was it was gladiatorial. There were all those things that turned tennis into a performance and entertainment and things. And without that aspect, I think tennis would not have, been uh, what the world sport is today so that was very important and alongside that you got the development of stars that really kind of kept people coming um to wimbledon you know originally 
um, you know, they were the, um, the, uh, uh, the, the, early, the early tennis champions. And then in just as tennis seemed to kind of be losing its track, you got the Doherty brothers in around about 1900. And they were just sort of stylish and graceful and elegant. And, you know, they had all the attributes that star, any star has today in television or, or film or football or things like that. Um, so that was a very important aspect of tennis's survival. But the second one that seemed to me equally important was that away from, you know, tennis was a very fashionable sport for the first decade, but then it lost a bit of its fashionability. But it rooted down in lots of kind of sports clubs around the country, first in Britain, but then quickly uh, across the world as well. And the British Tennis Club was a template, but it's copied very, you know, very quickly in other countries like um, America and France and Germany and, and things. And it was these tennis clubs that kept it alive at a grassroots level. And there were clubs, I think, you know, virtually, it wasn't true, there were they, they archery clubs as well and croquet clubs as well. But they, so a lot of the lawn tennis clubs developed from archery and croquet clubs because they simply offered a, another alternative to people to play. Um, and also an alternative where... Uh, men could meet women, where men could take their wives, the women could take their husbands, um, children could come along. They offered a, a wide range of things for the newly developing middle class family in the late 19th century. And that meant that they spread across Britain at an alarming rate. You know, it was just every town in, just before the Second World War had at least one and often had several tennis clubs. And that was true not just of Britain but across uh, uh, across Europe and across many you know uh, uh, aspects of the world as well so so tennis had those two two things that kept it going apart from being brilliant game of course the development of stars which uh, really kind of meant people flocked to see see the game being played and at the grassroots level a sport that was open to a wide range of people uh, who could play and 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 have and develop sociability through sport uh, on the ground, and those two things I think kept it going and kept it made made it into the in, into the successful sport it is today. And yeah, that's an interesting thing that I think still is, still is a factor today in the countries that have have success. And I want to talk about some of the other reasons for that later on. But um, but France is still very much organized around its, well, not France itself, but the French tennis scene is very much organized around its tennis clubs. And Roland Garros tickets are are allotted in part to to individual clubs. And that, that feels very much like a throwback to how it, um, it's a, a method of doing things that used to be more prominent in other countries. And the social history aspect of sort of association life that that people banded together to start a tennis club or an archery club or you know, improve their town, improve the roads. To do, there's a certain time, certainly in American history and British history as well, where where people were just doing a lot more of that stuff. I mean, for all sorts of reasons, it it happens much less now, maybe because the 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 home is so much more enticing, and we have so much on TV and the internet and all of that. But there was a time that coincides with the the growth of lawn tennis when people did stuff in clubs, and and I think that as you say, that that drives a lot of tennis's growth and and the fact that tennis sustained itself. But I'm wondering you. You wrote a lot about the, the role of tennis clubs, the, the nature of the clubs. Is there something different between tennis clubs and all these other clubs that existed at the same time and presumably a lot of the same people were involved with? Well, the obvious thing that was different, apart from churches, I mean, so you shared this with churches, uh, uh, was that the tennis club was a club that men and women participated in. A lot of the clubs um, that were in that voluntary movement you so eloquently described there uh, were sort of male-only or female-only clubs. Um, baseball was a classic example, I guess. Uh, and lots of cricket in England. Um, and a lot of the political clubs at the time were kind of male-only clubs. Um, so tennis, the tennis club, was one of the few places, apart from church, uh, where men and women easily mixed with each other socially, at a, in a, at a at a point when actually there were increasing demands for women's suffrage, for women having more power outside the home, uh, the tennis club offered that opportunities. I mean, even from the very early days, although men were often formally in power in tennis clubs um, as chairman or secretary or, or, or so, uh, the real power of a club was often through. Um, it, 
it's women members who knew were far more adept at the social niceties of running a tennis club than the men were. Um, so that was really, I think, the distinguishing feature, and 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 a reason why the clubs have why the, why the voluntary clubs have kept going because. One of the things I say in my book is that, you know, you said earlier about tennis always being a commercial activity, and I think that's true. But actually, at a, on an amateur level now, a lot of the tennis clubs are still, still uphold that sense of being a voluntary club where money doesn't come into it very much. I mean, the, the club where I'm a member, I mean, there are loads of people who are members and, uh, um, from very different walks of life. But nobody really talks about money or what they did or what their status is or all those kind of things. So it just is a is a, an area where it is non-monetized, it's non-commercial, and I think that is a really radical uh, achievement from, from the tennis club, which used to be true, you know, a hundred years ago, as you say, of kind of um, lots of other activities. But it's much rarer now, really. Um, I'm so I think um, the element in which the tennis club was a club for men and women. Um, is the one thing that has kept it going as a voluntary club um, all the way up t- to now. Because basically men usually women like socialising together, really. And um, once you start it becoming a commercial activity, then a lot of that easy socialising starts to decline a little. I've noticed in David Lloyd clubs over here, I'm not sure whether this is um, libelous or not, I don't think it is particularly, but notice that there is far less interchange uh, in, the, in, the, in, in the clubs that are run by commercial organisations between men and women. They're much more down the line of kind of men's tennis and women's tennis uh, than, than other voluntary clubs. So I think that's a kind of another indication, you know, uh, how the voluntary, why the, why the voluntary tennis club has kept going. Uh, after all these years, and I think it's a great achievement of tennis. So, so you, another thing that comes up throughout your book is the is the, the game in public parks, and I was blown away by some of the numbers you shared that the public court scene in England in the first half of the 20th century was it, it was huge. You mentioned there being 360 grass courts in Birmingham, uh, 100,000 parks players in 1930. I mean, these are mind-blowing numbers. I mean, if I walk by a park and there's eight tennis courts, I'm just, I'm amazed and, you know, beside myself with glee. And 360 grass courts, that's just, that, that, I can hardly wrap my mind around that. And this is all happening in parallel, mostly with, with the clubs you're describing. So what's, what's the difference in terms of the, in terms of the social experience, the types of people who were involved? I mean, what, what's the role here for the, the public court game? Um, well, I think it has had a very honourable part to play, I think, in, in, in tennis history, and one that has been not very well kind of recorded, really. Um, you know, there's most of the uh, um, social history works on tennis are very concentrated in either the clubs or the, um, or, the, or the elite game, usually the elite game, and little has been written about public part tennis. But it was clear, you know, once you started um, scratching around, that, and, uh, that it was it paid, it's paid a very large part, I think, in really getting people to come to the game. Um, there was, I think, I, I quoted a a, uh, a game in the nineteen twenties in Birmingham between the sort of public, the best of the public part players, and and uh, one of the Birmingham's kind of um, you know uh, most prestigious clubs. And um, it was clear that the club players were, were actually better. There was not little doubt about that. But that they thought that the clubs that the uh, that the clubs could act as a sort of um, a place that the part player who was really keen would then would then go go to. And I think this is the case today, isn't it? I mean, people play on the public parks because they want to play uh, a game or so, you know, with, with somebody they know. They only want to play once a week at the most, maybe. And it's an incredibly enjoyable experience. Um, the people who play in, in the tennis clubs are people like myself who want to play three times a week and slightly better course. Um, so on that fundamental level, you know, the public park players are the people that don't play that often and usually beginning to play tennis. And the people in the clubs are usually more experienced, often have played in public parks on, in, you know, in, 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 when they were growing up and now want to give it more of their time. And that immediately brings you into the notion that really, if you are going to 
you know, make sure that tennis uh, is really open to all. The place you have to start is with the is with the public parks because that's where a lot of people begin the game, and that's where you can grab people and make them enthusiastic, and then uh, uh, um, uh, um, you know um, funnel the most enthusiastic and uh, them towards 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 the tennis clubs. And that really hasn't been done in Britain in the last thirty years. It's a great missed opportunity, I think. Uh, in France, it certainly was uh, taken up. I think it's just one of the reasons why France has far many more players and also it's far better players than Britain. Um, but one of the things coming back to the history and the 19, what I loved about it in the 1920s, I think this is probably a missed opportunity in the 1920s as well, because there was little doubt then, I think, that uh, tennis in Britain in particular uh, could have become a mass, a, a, a game that could equal in popularity to football. Uh, and I think, again, it was... The public park tennis not being taken as seriously by the by the by the tennis establishment as as it should have been, which stopped it reaching out and, and becoming a game for uh, everybody in Britain, rather than usually for people from the middle classes. Yeah, it, it, it's an inter another interesting thread through your book. You mentioned in different places that all the champions that came from Australia, uh, the Rod Laver, Rosewall generation, back in the nineteen fifties. I think I think you say it has the more more public courts than than anywhere else in the world so huge number of courts there um, you talk about all the champions who came up from the california public court system jack kramer bobby riggs all those um and you've already mentioned france and philip chatrier's efforts to to get more public courts there the czech republic has always had um well it's had a lot of courts since before it was the czech republic um it seems like there's sort of a, a, to coin a phrase, it seems like there's kind of a trickle-up effect. Like it serves as a funnel that, as you say, the public courts draw people in, even if they don't spend their whole lives playing on public courts. And later in the book, you talk about the underrepresentation of of black and other minority populations in British tennis, uh, and the fact that public parks are probably the way in for those people. I mean, it seems like there's there's a lot of benefits to having a lot of public courts that go beyond simply, you know, developing the parks. Yes, it isn't simply, it isn't simply numbers of courts, though. I mean, it's, um, you know, because then you hit something, which I think also I mentioned in the book, uh, which is fundamental about tennis, which they learned from the very first game they played, that it's uh, a surprisingly difficult game to be even able to play, let alone play well. I mean, it, I think uh, Wingfield was astonished at how complicated the game <laughs> could be. You know, you've got a small soft ball and a kind of net and a court. You think, oh, that's just straightforward, isn't it? But for some reason, it actually is a very difficult game, which has a very high entry level. And this means that it isn't enough to simply provide kind of uh, courts in, in, in public parts at a reasonable kind of price so that anybody will come. You need to do, uh, you need to actually provide coaching uh, because only coaching will allow people to learn the right kind of technique so that they can actually enjoy the game more. Um, and unless you've got that coaching there, loads of people will just start playing tennis, realize how bloody difficult it is and then go off and play another game. Uh, but if you've got coaching there at the, in the public parks, um, then you've got people that will say, okay, yeah, it's difficult, but if you do this, you'll enjoy it more. And and that's when the funding can really start. I think, I think that's what France did and what Britain should have done. Now, if you then want to look at the underrepresentation of black people in tennis in Britain, particularly, um, then I think you, have, you need to start providing kind of mentors and coaches on the public courts who are black and start to develop the culture there that sort of young black boys and, and black girls who want to uh, take up a sport. And all the indications are that, you know, the black community in Britain is just as keen to play tennis as the white community. Uh, you provide them with a kind of mentor, with a kind of culture that they can develop on the courts and they can come better at it. And then they can actually start, uh, you know, uh, trickling into the tennis clubs and start changing the culture of the tennis clubs. Because there's no doubt that when you have... A dozen uh, 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 
um, black members in a club, the club changes, the culture starts changing, it starts getting more interesting. Uh, but you need that critical mass to start kind of shifting. Well, after all, it's a very, you know, naturally conservative place that moves very slowly, the tennis clubs. So I think um, that um, if you really, really are wanting tennis to reach out to far greater numbers now, particularly people from different racial communities, you need coaching provided in the public parks with people from those from those communities, you know, doing the coaching and acting as a mentor to the young people coming up, or indeed to older people who want to start playing the game. Because, of course, it is a game that you can you can enjoy even if you take it up at 40 or 60 or even 80, you know? Yeah, there's a, there's a great quote that I, I think this is from, it, 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 it's from a 19th century publication. It says that, Tennis is a game well-suited for middle-aged gentlemen. <laughs> it's true. And uh, I, I think, it, you know, I think in some ways, I think it's a better game as you get older, Rod. I mean, it's, uh, there's something about the physicality of playing. I'm in my mid-60s, uh, playing in your mid-60s, uh, a game which is still quite kind of, you know, sort of energetic compared, say, with golf or bowls or so. That makes you feel alive. And, uh, yeah, I think it is a gentle enough exercise especially if you're playing veterans tennis, <laughs> uh, for you still to enjoy exercising, you know, a uh, 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 um, sporting skill, really. Uh, I'm surprised. I thought, you know, that I'd have to give up when I got to 60. And indeed, some people do because their backs go or their knees go. So, but a surprising number of people are playing into their 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s now. I think that is changing the nature of kind of, uh, you know, how tennis is... is it, is perceived um, and even so to the point where you know even on the elite level you're getting increasing interest in you know the sort of um, the, the pro competitions with champions from the past um, uh, playing and also you know the ILTF has a whole wide range of kind of uh, veterans tournaments going up to I think uh, 95 now I think I think there might be a 95 plus com- no, I don't think there is. there's a 90 plus competition at the yeah uh, so you know, there's, there's, I think there is a is increasingly becoming a sport uh, which is open to all ages as well as both as, as 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 both genders and hopefully all races as well. Yeah, the the growth of seniors tennis is really fascinating to me. I've been I've been trying to sort out some some women's tennis records from the 1960s and and looking at all the players who were sort of on the fringes of the game, playing national championships or entering qualifying and. In bigger tournaments, there's not much about them, but some of them, if you Google their names, what pops up is you know they just they just won the national seventy plus, or you know that they met their their doubles partner of forty years in the finals of the sixty five plus tournament, and it just because of the nature of what's online, there's often a lot more about their tennis career as a seventy something than there is about their tennis career back when they were. On the fringes of the elites, I mean, nobody was writing about writing about the qualifying at uh, the Pacific Southwest in 1965. But uh, but they, there are records for you know the 70 plus world championships. Yeah, it's true. And um, although, you know, um, uh, it must be said, there isn't any money uh, in, in playing sure. those places. I mean, the champions, well, I was uh, been lucky to, to have some lessons from a guy called Paul French, who I think was uh, the top man in the world over 60s for a while. Uh, he's just a tennis coach in Britain, basically. Uh, and he says, well, the reason that I'm that and you don't have other players is because there's no money in it. I have to finance it myself. And so... Um, and so it's a, a, a completely amateur kind of, you know, sort of activity. Um, but even at that level, you know, Paul plays full time. I mean, the people I knew, even at county senior level, um, also, you know, play pretty much full time as well. Um, it's a level of enthusiasm, which I find a bit worrying because I kind of think that there are more, more to life than playing tennis full time. I like it as a kind of... Uh, a, a leisure activity which I can enjoy after I've done other things but I do know friends at the club that have played the senior circuits and they just kind of go from tournament to tournament it's, it's, their, it's their whole world really and these are just you know just at county level not even at national level and so the one did say that he used to love the tennis at these senior tournaments so what he didn't like was the conversation afterwards because all the other players could only talk about tennis and nothing else <laughs> <laughs> So that's all they were doing. 
yeah, that that is the risk if you throw yourself into something so much. Um, okay, so left turn here, uh, literally and figuratively in my segue. I, one of the things that was most fascinating in your book was was the history of the quote-unquote workers' Wimbledon. So we have the um, socialists in Britain organize a national tournament in, in the 1930s, and it's, it's built around the local clubs. And rather than me summarizing it, why don't you talk about this? I mean, it's something that, that that's, as you say, basically doesn't figure in tennis history books, but it seems like a pretty substantial part of history, at least in certain sectors of it. Yes, I think it was. It's certainly notable because uh, tennis has always been classified as a middle-class game. Uh, and uh, I think we need to be you know, honest about that. It has been mainly played by the middle classes in whatever country you go to. In some of countries like North Africa, it was the upper middle classes. Um, but I think that hid from certain times in, in the sport in which it did reach out to a much wider kind of a, a, a uh, participation base, and it was particularly true in the 1930s, uh, in which um, tennis was being played in the public parks, and there were a lot of players that really, uh, you know, started to up the game. Particularly the the what you could call the working class in work, the, the, the people from working class backgrounds that were earning a reasonable amount of money and had some leisure to actually play, uh, you know, play a game. We're talking about car workers and people like that, you know, um, and. Many clubs at the time uh, were still kind of uh, a bit snooty about blue-collar workers. You know, it was possible to get into some of the smaller clubs, but a lot of the a lot of the kind of bigger clubs were saying, you know, you need to have a you didn't have the right social connections. That is undoubtedly true. Um, at the same time, you had what was the development of in Britain a kind of alternative culture. That was developing amongst the left-wing parties, in which they argued that, you know, they wanted to have, um, you know, at, it wasn't if you were going to become a member of the Labour Party, it wasn't simply that you just went along to meetings and talked about politics. You also might want to go to a Labour Party reading group. There might be a theatre kind of uh, production you might want to play about. And gradually, the idea developed. You'd have a sports club. Initially, it was with football and, and, and cricket clubs, but soon tennis kind of was joined to it. And so you got this range of kind of, um, you know, socialists um, that wanted to play kind of tennis with their comrades. And also, you know, a lot of kind of working class people that weren't, that were quite good at tennis and not actually, um, you know, getting, being able to get into the bigger clubs. And that provided a critical mass for what became a kind of workers' tennis movement uh, organised by the National Workers' Uh, association uh, and the first one was in in Reading in 1932 uh, sponsored by the Labour Party Tennis Club in Reading and open to a wide range of uh, other social tennis clubs around the country which there were probably about two dozen plus lots of kind of um, people from miners tennis clubs which, they, which had evolved at the time and, and railway tennis clubs and things like that and so that's when the the tournament kind of became known as kind of workers' Wimbledon, the Wimbledon for the workers that people could go and play in, and that anybody could, could go and play. It wasn't, it wasn't seen as a kind of elite competition or so. And it ran for 15 years uh, and was kind of um, sufficiently kind of popular to be reported in the press. They, um, in the national press as well as the socialist press and the sporting press. And indeed, um, and you know, they had some pretty good players playing. Um, you know, there were. I think there were one or two that were would actually be able to qualify for Wimbledon. I think um, in the um, after the war, the uh, the sort of uh, um, one of the uh, um, um, one of the males. Uh, the male champion was uh, was was from the RAF and actually played um, Davis Cup for for Britain, uh, but that was unusual. I mean, it was you know th th these weren't these weren't kind of amazing players, but they were good players. It's sufficiently enthusiastic enough to go to Reading or London or Southampton or wherever the actual tournament was 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 was, was held in the year, um, and it was soon. Um, I mean. <laughs> 
if you look at the kinds of people who played in Workers Wimbledon, there were lots of railway workers, miners, boilermen, those kind of people. But also there were a, was a, a substantial amount of what we would now call middle class people. There were clerks and kind of uh, uh, a salesman and uh, uh, insurance agents and, and 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 people like that. So it wasn't it, it, it you know it wasn't it wasn't quite as straightforward as kind of these were the workers were playing and, and and middle class people were playing in, in the tennis. Clubs. There was a there was a, there was a lot. I think there was a I think there's a lot more kind of fluidity between the, uh, between the two groups, and that resulted after the war in the tennis clubs realizing that they were missing out on, on this kind of uh, wide range of people that could become members. And at the same time, the Labour Party moved away from from kind of organizing uh, in national sports. So workers' women have went into decline and. Unfortunately, I think it finished in 1951 or so. Um, it's the last one. Um, but it was still a real sign that there was a sizable appetite for tennis amongst all the population. And you didn't have to be middle class to enjoy tennis, which is one of the main things I'm saying in my book. Yeah, and that, that is one thing that's continually interesting. And... A more, even more general question that I, I wanted to ask you that I, it came up on, on the last episode of this podcast as well. I've talked to th- three authors with books who came out this year. And the first, the first one was, um, this guy, Stephen Blush, who wrote about world team tennis in the 1970s. And he was very focused on the progressive aspect of world team tennis. The words progressive politics are even in the title. Um, last week I talked to Sasha Abramsky, who wrote about Lottie Dodd, and he's a, a writer for the nation. Um, he's very writes about progressive political issues and your your political interests are right there in the name of the people's history um and you touched on this a little bit but there's this idea that the the tennis clubs tennis institutions are very conservative you don't think of of tennis as being a progressive game although we've already talked about many of the ways that it is so how how do you reconcile that why what is the intersection between tennis and progressive politics and how, how does that work in a sport that seems to be ruled by a bunch of tradition-bound institutions? Yeah, it, was, um, it was a tricky one for me, I think. I think it, it was my original motivation for uh, writing the book. I mean, I was always a kind of... Uh, my politics were always to the left, right from you know, my teenage time. And yeah, I was also very keen on tennis. And for a long time, it, it took me, you know, I thought, well, it's just two parts of me. They aren't, can't possibly be, be connected because uh, tennis is, uh, is, 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 is a kind of establishment game. It's a game that sort of is rooted in tradition. It's a game that doesn't have any, uh, you know, progressive aspects to it at all, really. Um, and that is, that is its image. And I think what I realised when I started researching, as, as I'm sure these other two kind of authors have realised as well, is that there are surprisingly number of ways in which it has been progressive or radical uh, in, in its culture and its history over the last 150 years. Um, do I think that's um, um, kind of um, surprising? No, I don't. I think the original, and I know I keep banging on about this, but I think the original desire for to develop a sport where men and women competed equally at a time when you know women didn't even have the vote uh, was an extraordinary radical step and that encouraged a culture which was kind of pretty progressive and always has been progressive um, there was you know so so i think that's been rooted in the very nature of tennis um, i think so and i think even even if you look at I mean, even if you look at a club like the All England Club now in Wimbledon, I still think there are there are lots of aspects of Wimbledon that are are, are amazingly kind of radical in their form. I mean, the people that are running kind of the All England Lawn Tennis Club are hardly the kind of um, you know sort of um, lords and ladies of the land really. The people who run it are just you know solicitors, uh, city kind of finance people. They're tennis enthusiasts. They really are. You don't have to go very far down from the symbolic uh, 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 people who are present to get kind of your ordinary middle-class tennis player uh, playing for it, who, 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 who really wants anybody to, you know, to, uh, uh, to, uh, to play the game. And one other aspect of Wimbledon that I, I really love is that 
the spectators there have always been very non-nationalistic. I mean, you know yourself that um, the cheers that um, uh, Roger Federer got were almost as many as Andy Murray got, and this is primarily a British kind of audience or so. Uh, so that's always been true in Wimbledon, and I, I've, I've liked those those aspects of Wimbledon really. Um, so even at the uh, its most kind of um, establishment kind of places, that there are surprisingly sort of um, radical behaviours, I think that's what I'm saying. So in the end, I don't really buy this notion of it being a, an, a, a, an establishment game at all, really. Uh, I really don't. I think it's been it's, it's progressive all the way through. And the only way you could say it's establishment is by the really... Massive pyramid there is in terms of the earnings of the top players. Uh, it's really completely unequal in that sense. Uh, you know, the top players get a fortune, and then you, you go down to the the number two hundred and fifty or number four hundred and fifty in the world, and they're just about surviving. Um, well, perhaps four hundred and fifty or two hundred and fifty, um, and that seems a kind of completely non-progressive aspect of it, which I, I would agree with. Really, uh, on the other hand, that's true of any cultural activity. It's true of singing. It's true of um, you know film stars. It's true of virtually every elite activity. Um, so there you have it. I do think in the end it is it is you know an absolutely progressive sport which has always attracted people from the left and has always been and always tolerated people from the right. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's an interesting way of thinking about it, and and it's it's because I've I've read these three books since succession, and it's something I'll definitely be watching for in the future. It's just a new way of thinking about what we see in the tennis world. Uh, now, you're a documentarian in addition to an author, and is there going to be a documentary of the people's history of tennis? No, I don't think there is. I'm not going to make it anyway. Um, <laughs> really not. Um, uh, I think, um, you know, my, my time as a documentary maker, I think, is coming to end now, really. I'm beginning to think that, um, you know, I've made films for the last 30 years. I tried to make a film about tennis several times for the BBC, but I just couldn't get the interest. I couldn't get a kind of, you know... Uh, a way in really I was a, in documentaries as opposed to in the sports and the sports kind of people really really wanted very much to keep tennis to themselves um, so no I couldn't ever get any interest then and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do it now I'm more than happy of course if anybody else wants to but no I want to I think I want to move on to, to write about other things so one of the things we didn't touch about we touched a little bit about it um, when you said that um, it was quite a short book but, but had a a lot of depth to it. I think um, I wanted it to be as short and as clear as possible and I think because uh, the writing on it was really trying not to be academic but to try and be kind of working in the kind of um, uh, uh, genre of narrative non-fiction to make it very flowing and readable and things and it took a, a lot of drafts to, to make it look as I think as effortlessly easy to read as I hope it is. Um, and I want to carry on in that genre. I want to write about something else now. Okay. Um, and one last thing. You, you, you talk a lot about the, the BBC Wimbledon coverage. I mean, just the fact that the BBC, or Wimbledon was so central to the BBC and vice versa. And uh, you talk about some broadcasts that I, I have never seen, and I'm jealous that you have. And the fact that from 1964, you said that there was 10 hours a day of, of Wimbledon on the BBC, which blows me away. And does does that still exist? I mean, is there an archive somewhere where you can go watch that stuff? No, I don't think there is. I think that's. I think uh, 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 the Lawn Tennis Museum at Wimbledon has some of that because um, I think the rights were. Um, I think have been taken over by. Uh, 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 IMG over the last 20 years or so but going back to 1964 the rights would have been with the BBC and the BBC archive is always a problem um, I mean you know when I was there it was possible and you know, I was a, I was I was a star producer there so I could access any of the archive I wanted to so I could always get that stuff to watch but it was never available to other people and it never has been I mean there's a massive BBC archive that's completely un kind of um, you know uh, not open to anybody really and I think it's a great shame uh, I don't quite know how you can do that because of course a lot of that will be undigitized it will be kind of even at the time it would have been on film 
uh, and so it's stored in the archive uh, down in Windmill Road for the BBC Film Archives, and a lot of it would have been destroyed because you can't keep keeping, you know, everything like that. Um, but there would be still a lot there. But you know, it would take an enormous amount of money to go and digitize it and categorize it, and it's just not available. I'm afraid it's just a great shame. Yeah, it really is. So we need to make some friends with either the people within the BBC or people with a lot of money or criminals. <laughs> Possibly, yes. I mean, I think some you know people have got their own copies somewhere. And I think the Wimbledon Museum is a good place to start if you have people are going to Wimbledon. Um, you know, spend some time in the museum because they've got a lot of kind of they bought quite a lot of those those early recordings. You know, so they've got you can at least see examples of them. Those champions playing they were phenomenal, weren't they? I mean, looking at how people, you know, Tilden and Labour and how they use the wooden rackets there compared to the, you know, the rackets we have now. It is astonishing to see the arts and the kind of, um, you know, sort of delicacy and and sometimes, you know, the sheer pace that they could hit the ball with. is extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it, there's a lot of clips on YouTube. I mean, you can go watch course, a few yeah. minutes of Althea yeah, Gibson can, playing or something, yeah, but... Yeah, yeah. But to me, that uh, no matter how much I find of that era of players, it leaves me wanting more. Hence the the question yeah, about the archives of potential full matches and all that stuff. Um, yes, I agree. I agree with you. Hmm. So, David, thank you so much for joining me. This has been fantastic. It's been lovely talking to you, Jeff. I've really enjoyed it, and um, yeah, um, no, it's been good. And um, uh, yeah, that's not sure what else I can say now. But, but thanks very much indeed for giving me the opportunity. Absolutely. So everyone, thank you for listening to episode 88. Um, I've been speaking with David Berry, the author of A People's History of Tennis from Pluto Press. So check it out if you're looking for last minute Christmas gifts or you want to, you know, buy a book that you will enjoy reading. I certainly enjoyed it. So thanks again, David. Um, thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.